Hey, this is Josh with the Wild West Extravaganza, coming at you today with a special bonus episode. I recently had the pleasure to sit down with actor extraordinaire Rib Hillis, who will be starring as the great Jim Bridger in The Tall Tales of Jim Bridger, airing January 11th on INSP. Joining Rib is writer, producer, and Emmy-nominated director Paul Epstein. You may have seen Paul's work on Into the Wild Frontier, as well as a variety of other shows on both Discovery and Nat Geo. I normally don't do interviews, reason being I'm not very good at it, but thankfully Rib and Paul did most of the heavy lifting. I was able to just sit back and enjoy the show. In addition to hearing all about the upcoming Tall Tales of Jim Bridger, you'll also hear what it was like for Rib to immerse himself in the role, along with some pretty cool behind-the-scenes stories. And we do talk quite a bit about history. So even if you don't even own a TV, I think you'll enjoy this. Both of these guys know their history. They know Jim Bridger. And you can tell they're definitely as passionate about the topic as we are. So without further ado, it is my great pleasure to present to you Rib Hillis and Paul Epstein. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining me. Rib, I know we were just talking. You wanted to interview me. <laughs> well, yeah. Before you, before you get started with that, let me just, let's talk about uh, the Tall Tales of Jim Bridger just real quick. Tall Tales of Jim Bridger is not a documentary, though. Can you all give the listeners like a good idea what the show's about? Uh, yeah, let me take this one, Rib, real quick. I have a little uh, easy way to explain it. So, you know, the show Into the Wild Frontier, Josh, that you've seen is what is usually called a, a docudrama series or sometimes called a specialist factual series. But it is a dramatization of real stories and it combines documentary components like expert interviews and archival material with dramatizations of the events that look and sound like, you know, regular TV or movies. And so Into the Wild Frontier is a docudrama, so you will see the occasional expert will get on camera and get on screen to put something in context or to explain a interesting concept that's being covered in the show. Um, the Tall Tales of Jim Bridger is a straight-up TV uh, drama. It's a narrative drama that you would see on any other network. Um, it's got a awesome main character, Rib Hill, uh, Jim Bridger. It's got an awesome main character, Jim Bridger, played by the awesome Rib Hillis, and a few other recurring characters. And it also has uh, special guest characters that appear just for one episode. And the last thing to say about Tall Tales of Jim Bridger is um, it's a close-ended show. Every episode is uh, what we call a case of the week. And it starts off with Jim Bridger finding himself in a situation, and he has the perfect tall tale to address the situation, which could be a conflict. It could be a dramatic situation that he's in. And the show goes into a extended flashback as he tells the story, and we see a younger version of Jim Bridger um, having this adventure, and then we cut back to the present day of Jim Bridger, which is 1868, and he finishes the tale, and usually there's a moral or a lesson or a resolution of some sort that ends the show. I actually still use some of the Bridgerisms, like it's all nothing but fool's gold, <laughs> which Josh, you'll have to see all the episodes to get. But yeah, it is. Uh, I keep thinking about. I was a kid growing up watching Magnum PI, and I don't know. I after I've watched all the episodes of Jim Bridger, and it's you know it's got that sort of vibe of like a like a TV show like that I grew up with. You know that 
we do a lot of voiceover. So I have actually sat, that's why I have this wonderful mic. Um, I, we, we do voiceover where as you're watching the show, you know, I, as Jim Bridger say, well, the year was 1848 and me and, uh, me and Zeb Morton were, you know, trapping up in Ute country. And so there's all this great sort of voiceover to, to lend, you know, some narrative to it. And then, you know, as Paul was saying, uh, we, the acting is insane. Like they, they, they cast so many incredible actors that would come in and, and show up every day and work for us that I, I literally felt like I was just living inside of a play <laughs> like the best performance of a play that I was actually in while it was happening right there in front of me. And I'm like, oh, oh yeah, I got it. I better, I better respond. <laughs> I can't just watch after participate. But yeah, it was quite, quite a joy. Well, are you, are you guys familiar with uh, Colonel Dell Dye? Um, yeah, I think he's a, um, is he's a World War II uh, veteran, or I'm not sure he's a veteran or well, not, but Vietnam a veteran. Vietnam veteran who consults for, uh, he's a, a, a military technical advisor for TV and film. Is that right? Right, right. He's he's uh, acted in a few movies. I think he was in Band of Brothers and Platoon, little little bit roles. But from what I understand, he kind of um, invented the concept of actor boot camps. Like he'll he'll mm-hmm. take the actors for you know an upcoming war movie. He'll run them through like a mini uh, military basic training. Rumor has it, I don't know if this is true. He reduced some actors to tears on the set of Saving Private Ryan. You know, it was pretty hard training. Well, it's not that hard to reduce actors to tears. Actors are trained to, the <laughs> actors are, are basically trained to, to come to tears. <laughs> oh, man, you got a great point there. Well, are y'all doing anything similar in Montana? Are y'all having these guys wade in frozen creeks or maybe locking them in a cage with grizzly bears or something like that <laughs> to see what they're made of? Oh, I don't know, Paul, um, if that was, if there was ahead. anything. Yeah, I don't know if Paul did anything intentional that they set that they set up like that, but certainly we would show up on this location outside of Missoula, and I don't know if Jim Bridger was actually ever there, but certainly it's probable. Certainly there were there were mountain men and and natives in that area, and once we leave sort of our base camp, we're out on location, and it's there's nothing, there's no amenities. I mean, honestly, there were sometimes that we didn't even have a porter potty on like the, the location we were at. Nobody's, you know, we're, there's no uh, sort of boot camp where we're going to make you uh, suffer a little bit in order to get into character. But just standing there, and I don't know, Josh, if you have been in Montana, but it is literally... Not yet. It is a, it is a leading character in any movie or TV show. It is so epically gorgeous that it, you, you can't help but feel... Oh my God! This is my. This must have been what it was like. Uh, we were up there in the summer times. Um, I've spent quite a bit of time in Montana over the last ten years, and I've been there quite a, bo- a bit in the winter. Uh, I've gotten into ice climbing, and I think about these guys, uh, you know, and and whatever, and the women that might have been out there, but these mountain men and the natives, and they were living without synthetic clothes. They didn't have. You know, they didn't have a big yeah. lighter in the middle of winter. Like I, I keep telling Paul, we should try to shoot some stuff in the winter. And obviously I've shot in the winter in Montana. There, it's hard, but um, yeah, just the, we don't have uh, whoever this Colonel guy is putting us through boot camp. The state of Montana just puts us through. Uh, oh, <laughs> and the mosquitoes. Whoa. Don't even get me started about the mosquitoes. <laughs> Pretty bad. Yeah. There's like a short. Well, there's a lot of them, isn't yeah, there's a short period. There's a mosquito period of time. It's like kind of like the end of May, beginning of June, where for about maybe a week or two weeks, it's just mosquito time. And 
you know, we're shooting next to rivers frequently because a lot of the stories take place in rivers and rivers have, you know, they're, they're photogenic, they have production value. And so, you know, there's a period where everybody would just be losing their minds with the, with, with mosquitoes. <laughs> and luckily it doesn't last that long, but during that time, everybody's hosing themselves down with bug spray and I get mosquito netting. I wrap it around my hat and stuff like, and you just got to power through it. And to, to Rib's point, um, you know, the mountain men and the, the, the real, real or fictional characters that we portray in the show would always endure that, but without any relief of any kind, they simply would have to be get bitten and deal with it. Cause it had no, nothing like a bug repellent, nothing that would suit uh, suitable to be a, a covering or, um, like a, you know, mosquito netting or anything like that. And no place to go either. At least at the end of the day, we go back to our hotel, there's no, no mosquitoes. Um, for the mountain men of this period, it just you're just endure, you're just enduring it, and you're dealing with it, and um, it's just a fact of the experience. And lots of the chroniclers, lots of people who wrote home or wrote memoirs or wrote of their experiences, would comment on this and how dreadful it was, and how in some cases literally drive, you know, um, trappers or settlers or emigrants go temporarily insane from the mosquitoes. In terms of a boot camp, we don't really have the time or the budget to do it as much as I would like. Um, so when every actor arrives on set, there's one main thing that we have to make sure they get right, right from the outset, um, just for our own sense of creative integrity. And also because it's something that will look bad on camera right off the bat. And that is how to hold and handle and carry and fire a muzzle-loading rifle. Um, and so, we have a armorer on set who's a um, he's a mountain man reenactor. He's in a lot of different reenactment groups. He's a professional film and TV armorer. Um, he's a living expert in firearms of this period and many periods. And so every time a new actor would arrive for their first day of shooting, the first thing I would say is right after so-and-so is out of makeup and costume, get him into gun club. We call it a gun club. And we would let Mark, our armorer, spend as much time as he could just showing him there is a right way and a wrong way to hold a flintlock um, long long barrel rifle. And there is a right way and a wrong way to rest it when you're talking to somebody. And there's a right way and wrong way to aim it. And so Rib mastered that quite quickly. And Rib will tell you, he never put his rifle down for a minute from start to finish for the entire production. Even <laughs> if in the scene, I'm like, you know, Bridger, maybe Bridger would put his rifle down and Rib would be like, well, maybe, but he might not. And I would usually defer. But that's one example of a very mini boot camp that we would do, which is making sure that an actor who, in many cases, have never touched any firearm before, but certainly not this kind of um, these unique and specialty firearms of the period that had to be handled a certain way, you just need to look like it's an attachment of your arm. You need to look like you always have it on you. And so we try to get the actors in the habit of carrying it correctly. And that goes from walking with it to resting on your boot if you're speaking to somebody or how you would cradle it in certain ways. And particularly, of course, when you're firing it, if they're in the scenes that we're doing, if they're hunting or if they're fighting, the way to load and fire um, one of these flintlock um, muskets is a very, um, very specific skill set and has a lot of steps. And um, it's something that takes a little bit of time to master. But that's something we would invest time and effort in to make sure that the actors would get it right. Well, from what I've seen, y'all did a really good job. Uh... Rib, I'll be honest, when you first reached out, I looked at your IMDB page, and my initial reaction was, this dude's too pretty to play Jim Bridger. No homo. <laughs> but uh, 
I was just like, you know, Jim Bridger, he's this rugged, just real rough around the edges guy. And then you got this actor guy here. He's too handsome, man. He's just too handsome to be Jim Bridger. But you pulled it off. When I when I, I watched two episodes so far, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, you pulled it off. You do seem, you know, you were very comfortable with that rifle. You look like, you know, you'd been eating antelope jerky for a while, living out in the mountains. So I, I think y'all did a very good job. Well, thank you. Yeah, I... Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm not coming on to you, I, bro. I'm just saying. <laughs> it's uh, I've 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 been called uh, I've been called more, uh, but no I I agree with you. They, when we think of mountain men, you know they're these just like iconic sort of rugged, and it's not it's not their you know their aesthetics. It's just they're they're so they can they can handle anything, um, but they do a great job. Certainly, getting in the wardrobe goes a long way. And then I I grow my beard out. Uh, more than it is now. And then obviously you watch the episodes when they age Jim up to, I guess he's supposed to be in his 60s. And then I go down into my 40s. They put this big beard on me that I remember the first time we did it in the pilot episode and it felt really weird to have this huge bushy beard hanging down. But something, and Paul and I, were we were talking about it you know, before we started taping, that after 10 episodes, there's something about wearing that beard. And I, like I grew up in Boston. I, I can start dropping my eyes and talk like I'm a Boston accent and, you know, if I can go have a beer down in Fenway Park. There's something about putting on those clothes and that beard and there's just, it just all of a sudden, I mean, the first the first day we shot, Paul was like, you know, I, I want you to find how Jim Bridger would act. How would Jim Bridger move? How would he say something? And I think by the 10th episode that we shot, I think we all kind of felt like, okay, there he is, and I I can't wait to get back into it. But yeah, there's all the all those things put on. I will say this: uh, I I had my nose broken right before we went up in August to shoot. Uh, I think it was probably seven episodes. I was doing jujitsu, and I got my nose, and I remember the, the it made such a loud noise. The guy I was rolling with goes, "Oh my god, was that your nose?" I said, "Yeah." I ended up going to the hospital. I had an, a a cat scan, and it was broken. But I pulled up a picture of Jim Bridger. And old Gabe's nose is like pushed. He's got a very crooked nose. So I thought, okay. Oh yeah, this makes I guarantee sense. you, he this... had his nose pushed around quite a few times. <laughs> yeah. And so what Rib was able to do, and he did this really just so well. He's, I, I agree, he's an extremely handsome. Man. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, I was watching some episodes. I showed him some episodes to my wife and her sister out in in Georgia recently. I showed them the Prize Fighter episode, Rib. Um, so it's you and uh, Jaden Cal who plays young Wyatt Earp. And like halfway through the show, my wife looks over at me and she's like, "There are some really good-looking men in this episode." <laughs> and I'm just like, "You are no more, no more show for you, baby." Yeah, that's Turn it, it off. So, um, so but Rib, um, what Rib was able to do is this is a collaboration between the two of us. Is like we have to kind of find the person that um, Jim Bridger is in a way that rib can then bring that person to life on screen and we tried to have some you know we tried to have as much fidelity as possible to the historical record about jim bridger um but luckily jim bridger historically speaking appears to have been an extremely likable guy we know um listeners to your podcast show your bridger uh, series will have heard that he was a fabulous storyteller and he could go on and on with story after story and tall tale after tall tale, but always in an extraordinarily entertaining way and that people would, you know, kind of go out of their way to go sit by his fire and listen in. And he became semi-famous for that. 
to such a degree that um, he began to be a little bit resentful that everybody just assumed that anytime he told a story, um, he'd be stretching a yarn. He wouldn't be telling the truth. And he would get a little grumpy about the fact that, wait a minute, this is true. This is something that really happened, even though it sounds crazy. And so Rib has this likable quality, you know, he has this quality about him that makes you want to sit and listen to sit by fire and hear his story. Um, and then the other things about uh, Jim Bridger that are well known is that he was really quite physically fit. He was lean, you know, he was spare. He didn't have an, an ounce of extra body fat or body weight on him. He's relatively tall. He had a kind of a piercing look. Everybody remarked upon his really impressive appearance when they met him for the first time. And Rib has that. But the role goes so much beyond the physical appearance. And Ribby did such a great job, really in that first episode or two, of deciding who you want Bridger to be and then, you know, sort of perfecting it quickly and then maintaining it is the most important thing, keeping it going so that episode after episode, there would be plenty of times and you would say, wait, hold on a second. I don't think Bridger would do this. I don't think Bridger would say that. And I would almost always defer to you because you're the one living in the role, living the inner life of Jim Bridger in a way that I wouldn't be. And so doing that together, I thought we created just a very memorable, very realistic and very believable character. So if you don't know anything about Jim Bridger, you're going to like Rib Hillis as Jim Bridger. But if you do know something about Rib about Jim Bridger, you're going to respect the performance that Rib brings because it's not out of known character for Jim Bridger. Agreed. I, I, w I would add this, um, and on our there, the very first day that I was there, I met Paul. He said, "I want you guys to think about this: that these were real people living back then, and they were, you know, they were suffering, and they would get attacked by, you know, wild animals and disease and danger, and just really imagine." Because I think I was guilty of the mountain man, and it's kind of like Paul Bunyan, you know, and it's it's sort of cartoonish, right? And that's how I imagine it. And Paul, on day one, and very, very simply, but just said, think about this. And Josh, you would know, because you talked about in the Bridger episodes, about how they were dying left and right. Like you could have, you, you'd have days where you would lose two, three people. You know, a month you'd lose 20, 30 people. It was just like a war zone. And I, I think none of us have, we haven't had to be in that position. So it was a, it was an interesting thing to sort of put myself in that world as an actor and realize that everywhere I went, there was danger. And that's what Paul, I think, was referring to. Like, I, I literally did take the gun when I'd show up on set in the morning and I wouldn't put it down. I carried that musket and I had a, a <laughs> I had a pistol in my belt. Uh, I had uh, at least a knife on me and sometimes two and a hatchet. And I just carried them. All, everywhere I went. And on a lot of movie sets and TV sets, you have a lot of, you know, quick treat your comforts, especially for the actors. Paul would never sit down. There was no chairs on set. There was no, like, uh, director's chairs. We were moving, we were, a, a, you know, a very active moving set. And I took sort of Paul's lead and just never sat down. Like, I would, I would, I would literally sit on the ground on the dirt. And it it sort of helped that idea of, you know, Paul was saying that I was able to sort of bring what Jim would be. But um, it was easy when you're out there in the wilderness and you're just constantly thinking, I could get attacked right now. I could get attacked by a bear. <laughs> you know, I could get attacked by, uh, you know, some natives that weren't happy. Uh, it was it was a real, it was an incredible experience to, to sort of be immersed in that world. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's really, um, I think what's so fascinating about this period 
and I, I I'm so glad to try to share it with the you know the, the world at large, is that we're portraying places that people know about today that people have all been to. We've all been to Yellowstone and the, mm-hmm. the national parks and we've driven through the passes and, and gone through South Pass, whether we knew it or not even. Um, and so we're portraying an America that is very, very well known and well represented and known to the world, but in a period of time in which it was all unknown. And so when Jim Bridger is on his way someplace, he may well be one of the very first white people to ever set foot, if not the very first white person ever set foot, um, known to have been anywhere. And when they went on these lengthy trapping expeditions, and this is Josh in your your uh, series about Jim Bridger, you would talk about this. They would go out for not you know days at a time or weeks at a time. You know, I think a lot of Americans can picture oh a tough camping trip. We're going to go camp for two weeks. We're going to be roughing it. You know, they'd be away from civilization, any part of civilization, for a year or two years or three years. And um, in the case of Jim Bridger, I think he speculated at one point he didn't sleep under any roof at all for four or five years, uh, except perhaps for a Native American teepee. I think Um, he never. I can't remember the exact time frame now, but I want to say he went something like 14 or 18 years without tasting bread. Yeah. Right. Right. Because a lot of a lot of things that we take so, so, so for granted um, were simply unavailable to these men living on the frontier because it was so incredibly remote. It's hard to remember or how to, hard to understand now in the modern era how big the United States actually is. And to Rib's point about going out to Montana and filming the series there, and uh, we would get relatively remote. We never were more than maybe an hour outside of Missoula, but we would get into the uh, backcountry a fair bit. Um, you are immediately struck by simply how gigantic and big and expansive everything is. I mean, you can. We were filming in places where you could see mountains on the horizon that could be fifty miles away. Um, you'd be standing on a riverbank and the river could stretch for hundreds and hundreds of miles and go someplace. Maybe it would join the Missouri um, eventually or join the Yellowstone River. And so, again, part of um, what we're trying to convey to the audience is the incredibly um, deep isolation and um, in some cases the deep loneliness that these men would have felt being so far away from anything that could be associated with comfortable living in the East, even in the 1820s, where it probably wasn't that comfortable anyway. But even stripping away that very minor level of sort of domestic livability and dropping these men into the Rocky Mountains for two or three years at a time, um, it's, it's really quite a remarkable achievement and an endurance test and a sort of a testament to how tough some of these men could really be. Yeah. I mean, you think about, obviously, they were, they could be attacked at any moment. But think about the little everyday things. You couldn't go to a dentist. You got to assume these guys cut themselves on accident, cleaning animals, stretching fur, stuff like that. What do you do when you have an infected cut? You know, they're just every, I mean, Jim Bridger had an arrowhead removed from his back that had been in there for a few years with no anesthesia other than whiskey. Yeah. I mean, that's. I, I had heard somewhere, and it may have been you that said it, that his, that arrowhead ended up coming out. And you know, Doctor Whitman took him out, took it out, and that that arrowhead ended up being on display in uh, in in Scotland or something. Am I crazy? I I don't know if it was you that I heard it on your podcast, but that no, no, I think, I think it's true. Yeah, 
I can't even fucking imagine having an arrowhead this big lodged in my back. If I have a splinter for a couple of minutes, I'm uncomfortable. Because every time you moved, that sharp edge would cut whatever sinew it's wrapped around. I, I mean, for three years. And he wasn't the only one. There was a, 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 another guy. Um, you, you know, you could just, you could count how many they just would walk around. Oh, got an arrow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I think it was Hugh Glass, actually. Hugh Glass had it. Well, you got to think how, how injured he was. Are y'all going to cover that incident? Hugh, uh, Hugh Glass and Bridger's probable, possible participation? Yeah, let me, I'll, I'll very briefly explain how we touched the story. And then maybe you can explain the story, sort of how you and Bridger share the story to the audience. So what we um, do in this episode, so... To the question, um, are we going to portray the Hugh Glass um, incident that was also portrayed in the movie The Revenant Mm -hmm. to to start it off? Um, Our series does touch upon that story that, um, you know, the historical jury is out whether or not Jim Bridger was actually the guy with uh, John Fitzgerald who together abandoned Hugh Glass after he was mauled by a bear. So we made that part of Jim Bridger's backstory. We kind of made it part of his character makeup and we're doing developing the series. And so um, it certainly indirectly affects everything that we do. And then Rib, I'll hand it to you because you can tell sort of the story of the story of the episode in which we actually, you know, do talk about what happened with Fitz, with Hugh Glass. Yeah, so that is that is a very you know, famous episode in Mountain Man lore, uh, you, you know, the Hugh Glass, uh, and they made obviously that the movie, The Revenant about it. And so we're, we're assuming that Jim was the guy who was there. Um, and then throughout the series, so we did te- 10 episodes, Jim is this, you know, uh, he's, he's dispelling, you know, some, some wisdom and there's a, you know, a moral, Sometimes the moral is really uh, obvious, you know, like there's times where it's like, you just, you never leave a man behind, you know, and he, and he, and he kind of refers back to, he's like, yeah, I learned a lesson a long time ago that you never leave someone behind or something to that effect. Well, we finally, in the 10th episode, the final episode of the season, which I assume is going to still air as the last episode, Paul. Yeah, we're keeping that. It's so good. Um, we want to have a good, strong closure. So we sure. we have to after watching, you know, uh, ten episodes, nine episodes of Jim Bridger, uh, and you know, and, uh, the Tall Tales, of Jim Bridger. This final episode, he's gonna come face to face with Fitzgerald again, which is, you know, obviously we don't have any historical facts for that. Um, I would, <laughs> you know, what I would imagine that Jim Bridger and Fitzgerald may have bumped into each other somewhere along the way over the, you know over the years, but we had, we had this incredible episode where they see each other for the first time after, you know, 20 or 30 years. And, um, it was, it was amazing. The actor who played Fitzgerald was just incredible. Uh, you know, as an act, this is what's so fun. I get to play make believe, but when I I'm playing make believe of things that really happen. And so you want to try to, I don't know, take, do service to what these men would have, what it would have been like. And um, we, the final episode is, is pretty, pretty amazing. And it, yeah, it definitely t- taps on that. I don't know, Paul, do we have any plans to actually shoot, uh, you know, the a Revenant type episode where it's, you know, a super young Jim and the whole Hugh Glass bear attack thing, or has that been done to death already? <laughs> well, I would like to, uh, well, I should say um, one thing about filming the bear attack is that the bear part of it is extremely difficult. And Revenant <laughs> did a pretty great job portraying the bear attack, but they spent, you know, three weeks filming it and they 
I know where to find a bear up in Montana. Outside of Bozeman, there's a bear. (laughs) There's a lot of bears up there, but we don't want to say, hey, Rib, go fight that bear. We'll stay back here and film it. So so there's that. But um, because it has been, the event itself has been done, um, you know, several times, certainly in The Revenant, um, we portrayed it in the series uh, Into the Wild Frontier, in which we had a sort of different kind of a series, again, more of a documentary series. So I don't think we'll ever really portray that moment where you and Fitzgerald are together with Hugh Glass. Um, But we may well go back to the story again, because as you know, spoiler, Fitzgerald survives his encounter with with Bridger in that episode. And Fitzgerald could become an interesting um, nemesis to Bridger in future episodes. But Josh, this is something that the show um, has to talk through, uh, navigate through frequently because the show is about Bridger telling tall tales for which he's known. And so we basically, we took one story he was well known for. It's a story in which he claims that either the crow or the Blackfeet or the Cheyenne or somebody chase him into a canyon and kill him. And that's always good for a laugh around the campfire. And so in in one of the episodes, um, Bridger is confronted by somebody saying, oh, the story is so dumb and tired and, and silly. Why do you keep telling it? And Bridger says, but what if it's true? And so in that moment, the show is throwing down the gauntlet saying, hey, we're going to tell you a story about how Jim Bridger dies and lives to tell the tale. And I won't spoil the episode, but you know the story adds up. It makes sense. And so in the tall tales of Jim Bridger, it's fictionalized adventures of real people for the most part. Jim Bridger obviously is a real person. And a lot of historical context that the show draws upon is based on Bridger's real experiences and real life. And, you know, the stories take place both in a present tense, if you will, of 1867 or 1868 when Bridger is working, as you know, Josh, and you covered this in your final episode, he's working as a scout. Um, mostly for the army up and down the Bozeman Trail. And it's uh, on the eve of the Red Clouds War, which again, Josh, you, you covered, and you also alluded to um, covering that in more detail in other episodes of your, of your, of your podcast series. Definitely. So, you know, when we see Bridger in every episode, when you meet him for the first time, he is working as a scout in the 60s, as Rib has said. And then something happens. There's an event. We call it the, uh, we call it the Encounter. Um, something happens to him at the wagon train camp or on the trail where he has to draw upon this, you know, uh, tall tale wisdom that he's got. And then the tall tales are largely fictional things that may well have happened. They could have happened. So there's never an episode in which Bridger, no episode yet, nothing planned, in which Bridger is going to fight Bigfoot. And there's no episode <laughs> where he's going to be in Ford's Theater in 1865, and he's going to wrestle John Wilkes Booth for the gun and not quite get there. He's not going to do that, you know, and he's not going to survive Custer's last stand at the Bighorn um, a little later, late in life for him anyway. He's probably blind at that point. So there's not nothing that is just historically preposterous, but there are things that are historically fascinating that, historically speaking, could have happened without, again, spoiling any episode. We have an episode in which uh, Bridger... Um, encounters um, the great frontier heroine, uh, Sacagawea. And he encounters um, Lewis and Clark's guide, Toussaint Charbonneau, uh, who are both obviously real people. 
but we stretch the historical narrative somewhat by explaining that this is 1829 when uh, modern historians, um, a lot of them presume that Sacagawea had died in 1812. There's a very persistent um, historical um, idea, and certainly there's an oral tradition amongst the Shoshone uh, nation, uh, and I read a great book about this after the fact, um, that Sacagawea actually lived to be quite old, and she died in like 1980 or 1881. And after the show, I went to the Shoshone Reservation to visit her grave, and on her grave marker says she died in 1881. Um, so we had this great episode in which Bridger encounters Sacagawea, and the whole story is about that encounter. And so this is something that there's no historical record that Bridger actually met Sacagawea. Historically speaking, there's no reason, officially speaking, that it couldn't have happened because Bridger was known to have encountered so many of the great names and people of the of the past, of, the, of his era. And so we lean into that piece of what-if history, and we make great episodes out of that all the time. And in the premiere episode, um, which is on January 11th, Thursday, January 11th, 8 p.m. at ISPN, put it in your calendar now, um, Bridger encounters a very young Wyatt Earp, who at the time, historically speaking, actually is working on railroad gangs um, in that part of the West in Wyoming. So we don't know for a fact that they cross paths. It's certainly entirely possible. Historically speaking, they could have crossed paths. And that's what the whole show is always going to be about, that kind of thing. I like it, man. It makes you think, you know, even if uh, in 67, 1867, is that when the episodes are taking place? So, yeah. And the, like basically, again, they're, the in, in Tall Tales of Jim Bridger, the episodes are really divided into a, a present day of Jim Bridger's life. Which right, is and then going back. And then we go to an extended flashback that could be any time from the late 1820s onward, depending on what the story is actually about. I was going to say, I get the age between a, a 60-year-old Jim and I go back to kind of in my 40s. But when they go back into like young Jim who meets uh, Sacagawea, I think, you know, and he's supposed to be in his 20s, they didn't think this weathered old face could pull that off. So we have a, another actor who is amazing who played – an even younger Jim Bridger uh, that would be in that, you know, 18, what, what would be 30s or something, Paul? 1820s, 1830s era? Um, that one's 1829. Yeah, Landon Tavernier. Remy, uh, Remy, uh, Barbiche, Remy Barbiche gets to play both eras, though. Remy gets to be, uh, <laughs> he goes through all the ages. Well, so Josh, we're talking about a character named Remy Barbiche. I don't know if he's in one of the episodes that you would have seen. He's a fictional composite of a Canadian a voyageur, a French Canadian young guy. Voyager. Yeah, okay, so I saw French him in Canadian. an episode. I think. Um, yeah, you might have seen him in one of our episodes. And you mentioned before we started, um, uh, you did one of your episodes about Kit Carson's conflict with um, uh, Chouinard, yes. this great French Canadian bully. So. You know, because Wild Frontier, we did an episode about that. I've always been inspired and kind of fascinated by the voyageurs as being these, you know, the sharks and the jets of the of the frontier era. You know, we've got the American trappers on one side and you've got the French voyageurs coming down from the north and they're just as tough and they're just as determined. And they're angry at the Americans because they always think that they were the ones that came before the Americans and the Americans are the newcomers of the nouveau riche. And they always say, we were here, we were on these rivers and we were in these mountains long before any of you people ever left the East. And so Remy Barbiche is a fictional character who appears in so far um, two episodes. He's a French voyageur and he's Bridger's nemesis um, for reasons that we get into in the series. And so Bridger has two episodes in which he has to tangle with this 
thuggish, angry, violent man who's played with great charm. He's like a lovable, charming villain. And he's played by an actor, a wonderful actor named Jordan Jones, um, who, um, who, who he's like this really compelling and, and charming. He's not quite a Bond villain, but he's like the frontier French-Canadian version of a Bond villain in a way. Um, and again, so it's another example of how we take situations that Jim Bridger could actually have been a part of. He, he was in certain many situations where he encountered French-Canadian voyageurs and it was often a confrontational situation uh, because the French Canadians were trying to claim the same trapping and hunting grounds his, as the Americans. His accent was not as good as yours, though, Josh. Your French Canadian accent is like, I oh, think well. it, sets, it sets the bar. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to hold anybody to that standard. I wouldn't judge anybody for not being as good as me, you know. But. I mean, as I sit here and we're, we're talking about it, I, I just keep finding, like, thinking about, you know, these these men and they live back there. And you on one of the one of your episodes I listened to the other day, you said that you were just fascinated by the the mountain men era, that frontier era, and how it lasted, you know, maybe three, maybe four decades, which I think, you know, it's pretty accurate. And think about these guys that, you know, we, we have stories about that we're still telling. And, you know, I, I love how these stories get larger than life. And obviously Jim's larger than life. But again, the thing that I that kept I think that we did a really good job of is grounding it in this is real. You know, I I couldn't only imagine like a you know, being in um, Iraq, you know, whatever, 10, 15 years ago, when you're going out every day with your platoon and you're getting gunfights every single day. And the level of this, you're being, you know, you're, you could be killed at any moment is, is palpable and real. And that's what these mountain men were doing. And their stories get a little sensationalized and, and, and caricaturized and it's fun and fun to hear the stories that in the Kit Carson episode when he had that battle with the French Canadian it's such a fun to visualize it but imagine on a day like I, it probably wasn't fun it was probably fucking terrifying no. you know you got these people that are <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. like his thumb gets shot off like that's I don't know that I don't know that anyone would laugh about your thumb getting shot off like and yet obviously time makes it feel that way but and in the same way, you have to, you have to sometime, somehow deal with it. Uh, I, it just, I, I agree with you. How, how did you, Josh, I'm going to ask you a question. How did you, what is it that drew you to the mountain man era? It's hard to pin it down. I've always been interested in history. I think when it comes to Western type history, a lot of it had to do with growing up in a household where there were always books around. And a lot of them were just really bad pulp fiction type books. You know, uh, everything from Louis L'Amour, who's, who's a great author, I think, to there was this guy named William W. Johnston. If you go to a Walmart or any used bookstore, you're going to go, go to the Western section. You're going to see a million books by William W. Johnston. No offense. He's passed on now. No offense to any of his relatives who may be listening. They're not good books. But when I was 12, 13 years old, I thought they were really awesome. And he had this character who was a mountain man named Preacher. And uh, I just really loved that was my first experience with the whole, you know, the fur trader era. And then my curiosity would want me to I'd go to the library and look up books to find out about the real life guys like Jim Bridger and Kit Carson. And I've always liked history, particularly this era. But when I started the podcast, even now, I like to talk about the gunfighters, the cowboys, all that type of stuff. But to me, the most fascinating guys are these fur trappers. I mean, you were just talking about how everything changed. It, it was a short-lived mm -hmm. period of time. A massive amount of change occurred. 
during that time. And the reason I asked a minute ago about, you know, when, when y'all do the present day footage in 1867, you think if somebody, somebody could have been a child, let's the Crow tribe, you could have been a five-year-old child when Lewis and Clark showed up. And by the time when Jim Bridgers getting ready to be a scout during Red Cloud's war, you're a 70 year old person. And you think about the massive amount of change that's happened between the core discovery and the Sioux Wars of the Red Clouds War and then followed by the Sioux Wars. Somebody, people live through that. And that, that that's fascinating to me. Yeah, we, we've tried to incorporate the idea of a changing frontier, how much has changed from Bridges' early days to his later days. We made that kind of a core idea of the series and in, in the series development. Um, and even in the premiere episode that the episode you'll see uh, first um, when the show starts um, when Bridger re encounters a young Wyatt Earp he's giving him wisdom he's trying to explain to Wyatt Earp why he shouldn't do a thing and Bridger says words to the effect of now you probably don't want to listen to some old timer and Wyatt Earp is like no 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 I've heard of you why Jim Bridger the old man in the mountains well maybe you just don't understand how things are these days and Bridger comes back and he explains to him, I know better than you do. Well, right and wrong doesn't change with the times. So I think it's a line. Um, and so we really want to show this contrast of Jim Bridger living by a code of conduct, a code of conduct and having um, an ethos and a moral system and value system from the early days of the frontier, from the 1820s, that's now somewhat at odds with what is his current modern world in the late 1860s, in which uh, there are telegraphs crisscrossing the country, there are railroads that can cross the country and travel from Missouri to California in four or five days. When Bridger is a young man, the whole entire west, west of St. Louis, Missouri, is simply a blank unknown, was full of rumors. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson believed there might be woolly mammoths living somewhere in the west. Um, and by the time we reach Bridger in the present day of the series in 1867, much of that has been uh, tamed and has been fenced and has been crossed by railroads and created, made into ranches and is being exploited for gold and coal and what have you. And here comes Bridger as a guide um, to people who know who he is, the most respected and respectable man on the entire frontier and of whom only a fool would not take his advice. And yet we know, um, historically speaking, and you and you mentioned this frequently, um, Josh, in your podcast about um, in the last episode, how these army officers who are tasked with patrolling and keeping the Bozeman Trail safe would often ignore Bridger. And they would just think he's some old man who's past his prime, uh, who gets scared of his own shadow and wants to sit by the fire and spin yarns and they have a job to do. They have to fight the Indians. But the people that know who Jim Bridger is would be appalled by saying, why are you not listening when Jim Bridger tells you, don't go into that valley? You don't go into that valley. When Jim Bridger says there's a big Indian encampment 10 miles away and they're intent on attacking the fort, you don't ignore that. You don't send out the woodcutting party anyway. What are you thinking? And so the show is always trying to be a juxtaposition of Bridger with one foot in this past in this old and older period, which is already being mythologized in his own time, um, and yet trying to cope with the modern realities of life in the 1860s in which a man like him is not necessarily um, able to find a home 
but whose wisdom and whose understanding of the West is unparalleled right. and his wisdom is still needed in the West. You know, I, these lessons just keep repeating themselves. And I think that's what I noticed in the two episodes that I've seen. I, I like how y'all are approaching that. You know, a lot of these a lot of these are, are timeless lessons, you know. And he's he's certainly, if anybody knew what he was talking about, it would have been Jim Bridger. Yeah, one of the things that I, I think you had mentioned it too, is you think about Jim and how did he have the success he had. Um Obviously, physical. He he could he could you know survive and and he was lean and strong, but he had to be a really good talker and not just a tall tales talker, but talking uh, deflating situations. And, and you know you mentioned in your podcast and you read the books like where he would ride out and see a party of uh, natives and he'd ride out and it could have easily been a battle. And he was just like, well, let's hear what they have to say. And then he ends up telling them stories. I, I mean, oh, I got to yeah. think that he also was a fast runner, <laughs> you know, like all these different, because so many of his peers died, uh, you know, just fa- met their end along the way. And Jim, uh, and I, I got to say, I love, um, he's a fallible person. He's human. And if, you know, if he had left you glass, that's a, that's a you know, a, a true sort of cross for him to bear. But I really love how history seems to have played out that Jim, he wasn't that bad of a guy. Like he, he, uh, you know, he had to defend himself when he had, when he needed to, but he wasn't, you know, we don't hear stories about a, you know, the Jim Bridger massacre. Um, you know, he obviously embraced the native American culture. He had three native wives. You know, he, he has this incredible, uh, quality that you just kind of like, and honestly, me, me as a human being, but obviously me as an actor, you want to emulate, you know, it's like, oh, I wish I could be a little bit more like Jim. Uh, he, he's just, I think it's a, a worthy character was made just a, the, to make a the show about. inner toughness. I mean, by the time this man was in his 60s, he had to have been hurting, you know. He had to have had massive arthritis. He, he was, <laughs> okay. And he's still <laughs> sitting in the saddle all day, every day, riding across the prairie. Well, one thing about Bridger that is actually known, well-known, that we didn't even want to get near in the show in a way, right. is that um, he had a what I think is called a goiter, or a sort of a growth in his neck rib. You know about this, right? Have you heard about this? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, from lack of iodine, from drinking snow melt, so he didn't have enough iodine in his diet, and he had a big, a big throat. His nickname was actually Big Throat, or his, you know, his native name. Yeah, right. And so, you know, people that met him would admire the fact that he has this incredibly sort of athletic and 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 you know, muscular frame, but he had this sort of unsightly growth on one part of his neck. Um, because of the health conditions, you know, the, uh, again, as Rip saying, lack of iodine in the diet and lack of any plausible way to treat it. And so, um, you know, he did have, um, ailments throughout, throughout his life, but they got worse as he got older and he did slow down somewhat. Um, and again, Josh, you, you covered that pretty well in your final episode about how he eventually kind of moved back to, back, not to the ECs, but to the environs of St. Louis where he had, farmland and he did a nice job actually Josh explaining how he would spend his days in his waning years um, really not able to see he'd have to use a cane or a stick to get around but he would still walk around his lands all the time and he could identify any animal by its sound and he could probably identify things by their smells and he had a pack of dogs with him and Rib, we got to get you a dog in season two I don't know why we didn't think of that I think Bridger should have a dog um because who, who wouldn't love that? Um, so um, well, I've done plenty you know, of talk. I've done plenty of talking dog movies. So I'm I'm well versed at working with dogs. In fact, I know of a good Montana dog. Her name is Kelly. She lives in Bozeman, and she's man, 
She said Nate, she actually came, came from a reservation. She might be related to one of Jim Bridger's old dogs. Is she a movie dog, a TV dog? Uh, she's been in a couple of movies with me. It's my my uh, partner and best friend's dog, and yeah, she lives up in Bozeman, and she has been in a yeah, she's been in a couple of movies with us. That would be great. I mean, there's plenty of opportunities for stories about the dog. Like you just were telling me, you lost your cat for a week. So what if Bridger lost his dog, and he would, you know, he would cross every mountain range in the world to get his dog back? So, maybe Bridger. Um, maybe Josh, Bridger has a cat. Is, yeah, I mean, you know, John Wayne had one. I don't one see Bridger as a cat guy. I'm a cat guy. <laughs> yeah, but that's why. You, the, the original tree. Well, the well, the guy he, he was living with, the uh, Asian gentleman, they had a cat. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, maybe it was both of their cats. Interesting. <laughs> I don't think INSP Network is a cat kind of a network. I think they're pretty. Uh, they're pretty <laughs> much into cowboy world, cowboy everything. Um, Dogs, it is, and western, western. Yeah, um, but yeah, Jim, Jim. Uh, you know, I don't think people know that much about Jim Bridger. The the average American uh, person who might listen. To the podcast or you speak to on the, on the street if you mention hey what do you know about jim bridger you ever heard of this frontiersman named jim bridger they might have the vague idea that he's a mountain man um or, or more likely know nothing at all and yet there are probably a you know baker's dozen of major geographic features in the west named after bridger and <laughs> i've been to are, many of them you know very uh, ribs yeah and 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 there are specific, you know, accomplishments in American history and exploring the West by Americans that are directly attributable to Jim Bridger is most likely being first American to uh, encounter the Great Salt Lake, for example. And uh, the one that is actually known to have discovered the water in the Great Salt Lake was salt water. Um, you know, he had, uh, the as you talked about, Josh, in your final episode, he blazed the Bridger Trail as an alternative to the Bozeman Trail. And if he had been able to convince this foolish army bureaucracy of the time that his trail was shorter and safer, which it was, Red Cloud's war might never have happened. Um, and, you know, not just Bridger himself, but the effect that he had on so many people that encountered him really helped create the idea of the mountain man, which is such a powerful um, cultural signifier, an American society, American culture. So many of the values that Americans live by and understand and, and the way we value ourselves today come from this mountain man era. It's an age of mythology that we um, that we value and we love and that we, in many ways, we still try to emulate. And I think it's just such a fascinating period and such a fascinating time in American history that um, I think more Americans should know more about how America got to be the way it was based on the experiences of people like Jim Bridger in the frontier era. In you know, it's time. interesting. They led the way, I guess you could say the destruction of their own lifestyle. They, they trapped the beaver. When that went out of style, the immigrants were coming West. They were started guiding for them. You know, a lot of the roads that these guys like Jim Bridger discovered is the, they these were the passes that the immigrants headed to Oregon and Washington were using. It was just an end of an end of an era for these guys, and they participated in it too. It, it is fascinating to me. There, there's really nothing like it. In, it seems like a very unique part of American history to me. I think it's going on. It's still going on today. I, I've been going up to Montana for ten years. Um, I did a movie up there called Cowboys versus Dinosaurs. <laughs> that uh, it was ten years ago, and I hadn't really been to Montana before. And I, I've been to Montana so much in the last 10 years that I, I kind of consider Montana home 
even though I live in LA. Like it's a strange sort of juxtaposition. And now when we go up to Montana, when we go and we're hanging out in Livingston uh, and we're, you know, we're shooting we're shooting our movies up there there's other movie crews <laughs> literally walking down the street doing like their shot selection i could you know i saw a director and a dp we're shooting our show we did a movie called powder pup and we're shooting in livingston and there's another movie crew prepping for their movie and kind of going back to what you're saying like jim bridger helped to uh, you know bring an end to his way of life well our quiet little town of Livingston is no longer a quiet little town. They they have a huge movie set there called Yellowstone Film Ranch, and they shoot episodes of, you know, uh, Yellowstone there. And uh, you know, it's just it's like, uh, yeah. Well, the quiet, the little secret of the West is no longer a secret. And I, yeah, I'm sure Jim and his friends probably sitting around the fire were probably like They're sitting around. How, how much know, did you spend for that jacket at Northwest? <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, as opposed to my buckskin that I shot. (laughs) Let's talk about the rendezvous, the Mountain Man rendezvous. I don't think, with with the network, you probably can't get too R-rated. But those those things were pretty uh, wild. You know, I don't know if y'all are going to be covering any of that in the Tall Tales of Jim Bridger. I know you have a little bit in Into the Wild Frontier, right? Yeah, so in Into the Wild Frontier... um, you know, the the production budget is a little bit larger. It's an hour-long show as opposed to a half hour. And um, so many of the, you know, the that show is is far more factually accurate. It's, it's, it's a documentary. So we're very careful about fact, factual accuracy. And so many stories that we tell in that series, they really, you know, either originate in the rendezvous or the characters have to be at the rendezvous for certain things to happen, um, certain, you know, real historical events. For Tall Tales... Even though Bridger attended many, many of the rendezvous, uh, maybe all of them, all of the 14 or 15 that were held, um, you know, on the Tall Tales of Jim Bridger on the show, it's a pretty low-budget show. And we don't feel like, at least in season one, that we were able to really stage a rendezvous that would look good, frankly. Um, the Mountain Man rendezvous, it started off as a small gathering. Um, it was initiated by um, the Fur Brigade leader, Andrew Henry, and uh, William Ashley in like 1823 as a way for them to bring supplies to the mountain men in the mountains rather than the mountain men having to go back to St. Louis. And it turned into a yearly gathering where uh, not only mountain men, but Native Americans um, from all over the West would gather in a certain place like Pierre's Hole in Wyoming or Jackson's Hole in Wyoming or sometimes on the... It's like Popo the Comic-Con of the frontier. I was thinking Burning Man. <laughs> it's like, exactly. Um, and every year, it's like a, somewhere between Comic-Con and Burning Man and, and, you know, and Coachella, I guess. So it was a method by which um, the men that were financing and organizing and basically owning the fur brigades, of which Bridger was one of those men at one point, they would bring supplies out to the rendezvous, wherever it was going to be held in a given year. They would trade the furs from the trappers that they brought in uh, for goods and then the trappers would go out for another year and the um, the the traders would bring the furs back to St. Louis and resell them. And that's the basics of how the economy works with this. But the trappers never really made that much money because they would have to it would depend upon how well their season went. If they had a good season, they would have a good healthy haul of beaver pelts so they could get it to the rendezvous. They could actually trade it for quite a lot of goods. But they weren't getting paid in money or cash. It would be paid in in supplies like um, gunpowder and lead for balls and knives 
and you know things like awls and sewing needles and hatchets and all kinds of things. Tobacco, of course, is a very, very important commodity and coffee. But one of the biggest ones, of course, would be booze, would be liquor. And the mountain men, and these are all young guys, you know, they're all in their, they're all 20s, they're all college age people. Instead of going to college and joining fraternity and whooping it up and partying it that way, they had no way to really party and, and be social and blow off steam until the rendezvous would come around. And so the first thing that would happen is the traders would arrive, they'd break open kegs of really, really bad whiskey, really bad rot gut, and everybody would get hell roaring drunk. And that's the accounts you mostly read of the rendezvous, of just extraordinary hell-raising, loud, angry, drunken, hullabaloo and brawling and craziness. Isn't there that guy Meeks, like, the, the riverboat captain? Meeks, the riverboat captain, shooting a, a, a tin cup off his friend's head, and and then he shoots him between the eyes. But then they were like, "Well, he never missed, so he must have done it on purpose." Like that's just insane to me. Like as drunk as you and I would get, Paul, I'm not going to start shooting soda cans off your head. Oh, I appreciate that, by the way. But <laughs> um, I, I trust you. If you want to try it, I trust you, Ribby. Now I'll let you do that. Um, it's uh, it's Mike Fink. Mike Fink, yeah. Mike Fink is this famous. He was a, he was a, a river um, a keelboat captain, and he was known for being the toughest guy in the Missouri and for drinking and for this game he would play with a good friend of his where they would get drunk and shoot a tin cup off each other's heads. But then they got into a, a argument of some sort over a woman or over a trade that went wrong. And Mike Fink said to his friend, and the name of the friend escapes me, it might have been somebody Collins. Hey, Collins, let's do it. Let's go play our shooting, shooting cups game. Whoops. And Collins knew there was some bad blood, and Collins was sort of saying to Mike Fink, yeah, we're cool though, right? We're going to do this. We're just going to have some fun, old buddy. It's not going to get weird, right? Mike Fink's like, oh, what are you talking about, man? No, we're friends. I'll shoot first. And so, he, and so sure enough, he shot his friend right between the eyes over whatever this dispute was. And then just a week or two later, Mike Fink got his because the victim's friends decided to go out Get get even with Mike Fink, and they 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 killed him somehow. I don't remember the detail of the story. Um, this idea of you know eye for eye justice is something we talk about a lot in the series. It's the, we call it the law of the mountains, and we talk about it in the show. It's an idea in the show that um, it's in the premiere episode actually. Out in the frontier, there is no law. There's no sheriff. There's no court. There are no judges. The law is what the men would make amongst themselves for each other. And it was a somewhat binding code of conduct. It was a, um, a moral system that they would live by. And that's part of the story of Kit Carson and his duel with Joseph Chouinard, the French-Canadian bully, over the attractions and charms of, a, um, of an Arapaho woman. Um, at the end of that story, Kit Carson is well within his rights to kill Chouinard after Chouinard's shot misses. And I won't spoil the story for anybody so that Josh... You're a great episode. People can listen to that, but it's a it's a fascinating story, um, and so yeah, there's stories like the one that Rib is was was speaking about, in which one man would kill another for some reason, and it ties into the stories we're talking about uh, the world of the rendezvous. And these frontiersmen would get roaring drunk, and some old uh, conflict that they had with another trapper eight months ago about a prime beaver trapping spot or a stolen pelt. They would get drunk and decide to settle it. They would come to blows or would come to knives or sometimes would come to guns. 
And whatever happened, the trappers themselves would decide if it was okay or not. If the violence was justified based on the facts that they knew, then they would say that was fair. And if it wasn't fair for the, based on the facts that they understood them, um, they would blame somebody and that person could be punished in a number of ways. And so the frontier era is really fascinating. The rendezvous, the rendezvous are really, really amazing. Long way around the barn to say that so far in season one, we didn't portray any rendezvous, though I sure would love to do so because it would be a great storytelling. Well, you know, what, what y'all do portray is that Bridger was a leader. He was a leader of these brigades. And these mountain men were tough, right? How tough did he have to be to be in charge of them? So, you know, that whole Machiavellian thing, is it better to be feared or respected? I'm pretty sure there were some guys that didn't want to tussle with Jim Bridger. But you can't just lead on that indefinitely, right? Because the guys were afraid of him. I think a lot of it came down to respect. He led by example. His, his men knew he wasn't going to ask nothing of them that he wasn't going to do himself. And they, they knew he'd already done it, you know? It's on that note about um, uh, Jim Jim being a leader. That's something that I had to deal with and, and sort of figure out for myself as an actor because you know you'd be on set and some of these actors, I mean they're all incredible, but some of like the guy who played um, Bob Bullock, like he was big, bigger. He's taller than me. I'm six feet tall, 180 pounds, and he was. He looked like he'd take a punch. Like I mean, it looked like if if we got in a fight, it would not be a fun fight. Like and so there was not this, and as and so me as Rib as the actor, trying to navigate this world of how physical can I be and realizing you can't intimidate everyone because there's plenty of people that are bigger than you and there's plenty of people that, uh, you know, just don't don't scare and spook. And I would imagine, like you said, that Jim had to be very diplomatic and know when and how to deal with that. And as a leader, certainly as you get older, then, you know, there might be uh, people defer to you because, okay, you're the wise old man. Or, you know, he's only 35, but he's been around for longer than everyone. Um, and it's the same thing. Even now, like I said, like on the onset, you know, and I, I had to figure out how am I going to, the guy who played, uh, oh God, what's, um, we got in the huge fight with the, the Native American actor. Um, oh, Washaki, Michael Bricker, yeah, who played Washaki. Yeah. And this guy's huge. He's like 6'2", six, 6'3", two, six, like 220, 230 pounds. He's actually a, a jujitsu guy, and uh, I think he did judo. And we get in this huge, brutal fight with knives and, and all this stuff. And me, as an actor, I'm like, uh, you got to, I don't know, I just you had and had to navigate, okay, how am I going to, how am I going to make this look, you know, believable? Because you can't intimidate everyone. And I think, yeah, Jim, you would imagine somebody probably took a swing at Jim at one of these rendezvous, and he may have realized um, I should beat this guy up, or maybe, I don't know, maybe his reputation was such that he didn't have to, and he would people would be like, "Well, Jim's just smart, and he's one." But that is um, how you manage egos, and I imagine these mountain men out there. I think the reference to college, yeah, imagine a bunch of college guys, <laughs> you know, going out and trying to trying to work to get like it must have been just sort of this controlled chaos. Really, God, it would have been fun. <laughs> yeah, until. <laughs> I, I have nothing to add to that yeah, just until, until the black there's feet, a million black, things that could happen just until the black feet black feet show up and decide to like your horses yeah. and then it's not as much fun i mean just you know in, in one episode y'all had a guy with his arm had been broken looked like it was in a sling oh, we were, we actually broke that we just broke it on set 
Oh, y'all just broke it. Okay. That's good. I was hoping y'all did. Yeah. But, you know, it, if if you're a fur trapper, 1830, you, you have a broken arm. What happens? What do you do? There, there's no, uh, no painkillers out there. Well, I think, you know, what you did was um, you would simply power through the situation in the only way you could. You would just endure it and survive. They probably could set a bone, I bet, more or less, you know, um, you know, different Native American tribes may have had a little bit more or less, you know, uh, understanding about how to treat some kinds of wounds. Um, but you're right, there's no anesthesia. Even the the anesthesia of choice of the 19th century, for the most part, like opium or alcohol, in the settlements, you could get that. But out on the frontier, just that wouldn't be there either. So whatever pain you were enduring, you simply had to endure the pain. And if your injury was debilitating, like if you broke an ankle or a leg or something like that, and you couldn't keep up with the brigade or you couldn't uh, stay with the people you're traveling with or hunt or anything, I, I don't know the details for sure, but I believe in some cases they would be forced to leave those men behind, but they would leave them with as much food as they could and powder and ball. Or maybe they would try to get them to a friendly enough Native American group to say, we're going to leave this person with you. And Native Americans were, uh, you know, in the in the later part of the century, it was very hostile. In the fur trade era, you know, it was hit or miss. Sometimes relations were quite good. Sometimes they were hostile. But mountain men could often turn to a, um, a, a relatively friendly local Native American tribe and leave the person. But, you know, as we were saying earlier, Jim Bridger got shot in the back with a with an arrow. And they broke off the shaft and they probed around trying to get the thing out. I think somebody said they used a wire to try to scrape it out. Couldn't get it out, so they bandaged him as best they could and he kept on trucking. Um, so minor injuries could amount to be something of a death sentence for you. You know, if you lost your mobility, if you weren't able to move and you were not close to anything at all, if you weren't close enough to a river to get picked up by a boat, if you weren't close enough to a friendly Native American village where they would care for you until you healed or not be able to move around, you might have to deal with, you know, being left on your own, I believe, on the frontier um, with as much many resources as your friends could provide, but the, the brigade would have to move on. And you know, they couldn't linger very long in any one particular area waiting for somebody to heal, maybe a few days or a week or who knows what. But they couldn't sit around for, you know, a month or two months waiting for somebody to heal because they would simply trap out all the trapping and they would hunt out all the game and they would start to run out of food themselves. And so minor injuries could become extremely dangerous and deadly situations for, for almost anybody on the frontier. Absolutely. Tell me more about anything uh, particularly exciting or funny happened on set while y'all were filming. <laughs> Gosh. Did anything funny happen? I can't remember that. I, I'm thinking the same thing, and it sounds it sounds horrible, and I'm sure people listening are like, what do you mean nothing funny happened on set? We had an incredibly productive and hardworking set, and but there was not a lot of sort of reverie and joking. Like, there was... I imagine it probably was very similar to how life was for the frontiersmen, for the mountain men back then. Like we had tasks and it was long, hard days, um, but it was all done, you know, it was done happily. We were, we were glad to, but man, I guess, yeah, we had some nights, man, we were out <laughs> like 4 a.m., 4 a.m. Uh, it wasn't freezing cold, but it was a little cool. And we'd been shooting for you know, 12, 13, 14 hours. And, and I, Paul, uh, Paul's a maniac. 
He does not stop. He, he may not look like it, but he is like an Iron Man. And he would not stop. He has a trekking pole and no chair. And he just kept going. And it's four o'clock in the morning. And Paul's like, okay, great. We're going to just turn around. We're going to set up another shot, which means we're going to keep working. And and there was just this, like, like this, this vibe. It was just this collective breath that everyone kind of went, because people are dog tired. And I was never going to quit. Like you literally, I was, I would have, I would have been dead on the ground. I gave everything I had because Paul, Paul was just relentless. And, you know, I think we ended up wrapping out pretty soon after that. But I mean, <laughs> that's probably not a good example of like, you know, any fun things happening on set, but we, we just, we just worked, we just worked hard. Well, sure. Yeah. I remember that night distinctly. I mean, there's just nothing, I'm speaking as a director, there's nothing like the feeling of, you know, you have a scene you have to do finish and it's been a long, cold night and it's been 14, 15 hours and everybody's, it's a weekend, it's a Friday night, everybody's dying to leave and you get this this palpable feeling of everybody staring at your back thinking, please don't do another shot. Please don't do another shot. And having to be like, oh, I just need one more shot or not, you know, and I think probably one funny thing that definitely that we can wrap up on this. This is, this actually was pretty funny, and I wound up saving an episode for a very strange reason. But Jim Bridger, the character, of course, is a storyteller, and many of our episodes start and stop. We'll know where this is going in a moment. A lot of our episodes start or finish with Jim Bridger. You know, he's telling a tall tale, and that's how the story begins. And so, at the end of an episode, we we're shooting one day, shooting the last scene where. Jim Bridger has done his heroic deed and he has saved, um, saved somebody from a, from a terrible fate. And everybody's gathered back around the fire again. And the script is ending with Bridger saying, hey, let me tell you about the time that uh, such and such a thing happened. And I just, uh, Rib started doing the scripted scene. There's probably four or five lines. And I just decided not to call cut. And I just decided to see how far could Rib go spinning out this story, just adding stuff, ad-libbing stuff onto the story, you know, over, you know, just keep it going as long as he possibly could. And the answer was like shockingly long. <laughs> he went going, kept adding to the story where he wound up chasing a bear and he was in a cave and he came out of the cave and he was supposed to loop something around the bear's ear. And it just went on and on and on. And he never broke character and we didn't stop rolling. And it turned out to be an awesome, hilarious story. And finally, he just said, and then this, and then I got away. And it had been like five minutes of just straight up rib ad-libbing this epic story. And the whole crew burst out laughing. We all laughing our ass off at how funny it was and how awesome it was. But now this is where it became a remarkably, this is where it became a remarkable stroke of good fortune. You know, that episode begins with Bridger finishing a story around the campfire when the, you know, the, the crisis of the episode breaks out. And we had some problems shooting that day. I can't remember what it was. It was me mainly bungling my thinking about what to do. But for whatever reason, we didn't have coverage of the beginning scene around the campfire where Bridger is telling a scripted story where all of a sudden, out of nowhere, while he's telling the story, a girl is wandering off by herself. She gets bitten by a rattlesnake. And we didn't have good coverage of Bridger telling the beginning story. But then we remembered in post-production, wait a minute, we did one take where Bridger just, where Rib just spun off this endless tall tale. 
let's just use part of that. And so we put it in the beginning of the scene of the episode. It's the same campfire. It's the same situation. You know, Bridger's wearing the same costume and it works perfectly. So this ridiculous, endless story that Bridger told just for a laugh uh, in production actually saved our bacon in post-production because we needed a story from Bridger that we could use for the beginning of it because we didn't have it for some reason. <laughs> there you go. It was meant to be. I remember that. I remember that well. Yeah, they, they didn't. They didn't say cut, and and you're in a scene, and the scene. I I've had uh, my best friend. Uh, he he says you never you never quit on a take. You never quit because you never know what's going to happen. You know, you might slip, fall down. I don't stay in character. I don't care. Maybe you're supposed to ride a horse. You fall off your horse. That might be the take that you use. And so he nobody said cut. And so I had to tell this. I just started telling this story. And it's like, ah, did I ever tell you the time that my best friend dared me to tie a bow around the ear of a grizzly bear? And then I just kept going because he didn't say cut. And I started, and I'm like making this story up on the spot. Well, yeah, it was the middle of winter. I had to crawl through like a mile of snow to get in there. And, and it just kept going. And when I finally ended up getting the part, and then I ended up down in uh, Virginia City, and there was a horse. And then I did what's called breaking the fourth wall. And I just looked right down the barrel of the lens after telling this story. And everybody cracked up. And sure enough, that ends up in the show. It's pretty fun. <laughs> not, not the whole story. Not the whole five-minute story. But thank God we have it because I saved that episode. That's, that's good, man. That means you got a professional crew, it seems like. Not that I know what I'm talking about. But, I mean, just you, you, mentioned, <laughs> earlier, you mentioned earlier about it not being a huge budget. But I'll tell you, I couldn't tell. I, uh, this is a little unrelated. I was recently doing a little bit of research and I found this documentary on a guy I'm covering that was, uh, the, the most recent documentary on this guy was from the mid nineties, 1990s. I've never seen such poor production work in my life. I don't know what they were thinking. And it was a major, I won't say the name of the, the network. It was a major network. And I know y'all are probably operating on a fraction of the budget that these guys were back, even back then. Everything, as far as I'm concerned, is very, very professional. Even, you know, you're shooting on location. Earlier, we were talking about The Revenant. They weren't shooting on location. You, you guys are are where Bridger actually walked, where where he lived a good amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, uh, so the, go ahead, Paul. I was just going to say quickly that the inside baseball about some of this stuff is, um, you know, a show like Into the Wild Frontier um, or – a show like the one you're talking about, Josh, just about Old West Outlaw of some sort, you know, these are known as, um, you know, these are known as, quote, recreations shows. And the idea of a recreation show has a bit of a bad odor to it because, you know, for so long when people were doing, quote, recreations in a otherwise documentary show, like a true crime show or historical show, they always had low, really low budgets and they always looked cheesy as heck. And, Part of it is, you know, part of it's lack of money, but also part of it is just not having really talented, you know, uh, people with film or narrative TV background trying to put these recreation sequences together. You'd have people do documentaries or do recre do reality shows and stuff, and they just always look bad and be cheap and silly looking, and it's kind of given the idea of a, quote, recreation show, unquote, a bad name. Um, but... We've seen time and time again, and I like to think the shows that I've done, the shows like Into the Wild Frontier, technically it's a recreation show, it's a docudrama. We call them now factual dramas. It all means the same thing. 
we really invest a lot of effort into making the dramatizations be as dramatic and compelling as possible. And the documentary parts are really just a little bit of icing on the cake. Um, and again, to be clear, Tall Tales of Jim Bridger is not even that. Tall Tales of Jim Bridger is a purely scripted show. It's a historical drama um, in the same vein as a new Bass Reeves show or as 1883. Tiny fraction of the budget, but otherwise it's an old West show of the kind you would see on of any other network. You know, if y'all ever need somebody yeah, again, to stand in the background up there, if you ever need like uh, I was you know, thinking, Jim Bridgers, Josh, I was like, thinking the same thing. Slow-minded little brother or something like that. I just stand there and I can pull off a simple-minded guy. Well, I, I will say we 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 get a season two coming out of this. I think we need to have Josh up there. But I want to give a quick shout out to um, the people working behind the camera because you were referencing watching something and looking at sort of production value. When you can throw all the money in the world at something, it still doesn't mean it's going to be great. But when you have people that are literally will give every ounce of their energy and time and effort and expertise to something, like it was absolute incredible to watch this crew uh, from our camera department, you know, uh, our sound department, a wardrobe, the wardrobe department. Um, he came out from Virginia. Like, and he had all this incredible gear, you know, wardrobe that, um, oh, my God, those shoes. I'll tell you, the sh we were running around in these shoes that are apparently authentic era shoes, but they had slick leather bottoms. Man, it was a pain in the ass. But it added to it. It added to it. It gave every little bit. And everyone was there at 4 o'clock in the morning when we were shooting, you know, the makeup department. Um, and there's... <laughs> on movie sets and TV sets and like anything. And I imagine even like Jim Bridger, there's an energy. There's a, you know, like when you're on a ship and there's like, oh, I don't know, we might have a mutiny on this ship. We never had that. Um, there were hard days for sure. And there were days where people were like, fuck, man, I, I'm, <laughs> I need a beer. I wanna. But there was this sense of we're doing something together. And this was, you know, and I remember one day talking and saying that this was something that we could all be proud of. And I think it's turned out so that you do something that you just, it isn't the money. Um, it's you're doing it for a greater cause. I personally, this is my dream job. And the fact that I'm getting paid to do it and probably shouldn't say this out loud, but INSP didn't, we didn't have to pay me for this. I would, <laughs> it's just a dream. But everybody seemed like they were there for the right reasons. And, you know, eventually, I'm, you know, people might decide it's not for them and they might move on. But we had a, we had a real, uh, everybody was, everybody was bringing everything they had. So I, I'm glad that you noticed that we were able to deliver something that has a production value that far, far <laughs> surpasses the budget. Uh, it was it was really incredible. And I'll say one more thing. Um, you know, part of what you're saying, Rib, about how the crew was you know dedicated and gave it their all, and didn't gripe and didn't complain, and was general generally cheerful and generally you know just got the job done and you know enjoyed the good parts and just powered through the rougher parts. In 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 a very big way, Rib. I've said this to you before. Um, the tone on the set. Um. Uh, that good tone that we were talking about is very much due to you personally, the way you behave on set, because um, you were beloved by the entire crew. And we can't really take that for granted from actors, as we know. Sometimes actors are difficult, or at least just not necessarily difficult, but not warm and open and thrilled. And you exuded so much enthusiasm every day. 
Um, you'd show up at base camp every morning just saying, let's get started. I can't wait to start. And you put so much heart into it. And you were so kind and friendly and pleasant and uncomplaining in all these difficult times. I mean, I think you contributed so much in the in, to this spirit of getting it done and doing it well. Uh, I've said this to you before, and I really I can't thank you enough for being Rib Hillis as well as being Jim Bridger, because um, if we had had a difficult or unpleasant or disagreeable person and you're not any of those things in any way, it could have been one of those shows that you've we've both been on where it's a hate show and everybody kind of hates each other and y'all just dying for it to be done. And it wasn't that at all. And I really give you basically all the credit for that by just being the lovable heart of the show. So I really appreciate that. And and I know the crew feel the same way. Man, Thank Rib, you. you got me talking about how handsome you are. Now you're a nice guy. <laughs> yeah. Earlier you had to drop that you know jujitsu. Dude, save some pussy for the rest of us, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, slow uh, down a little it's bit. It's all buddy. yours. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 well, I just, I've been doing this for a while. Um, and it, it's a dream come true. You know, it's a, and I think it's a nice synergy for the role that I get to play both on and off screen and the character I play. And then I can imagine Jim Bridger waking up in the morning and they're out in the middle of, you know, hostile territory. And having to say to his men, like, hey, you know, we got to keep our heads on straight and let's make sure we, you know, work hard today and nobody, nobody drops, you know, drops their guard. Like, I, it was this strange sense of like, yep, yeah, this is, uh, this is if Jim Bridger were alive today and he were an actor, <laughs> he'd be here doing this. So, <clears throat> well, gentlemen, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to do so. Thank you. And I always, I always love hanging out with Rib. So, um, an excuse to do that is good. Um, uh, so yeah, thank you for giving us January 11th. I'm just, uh, yep. January 11th at eight, 8 PM, 8 PM Eastern time on, on INSP. And I know this cause I just did a bunch of promos and you can tune in every Thursday night at 8 PM Eastern time. So I, I was going to say you. that I'm just thrilled that I was able to get on here and talk to you so I can see you cause I've heard your voice. And I just, I was like, this whole thing is a ploy so I could just see what you look Y'all like. Y'all just wanted to see if I was a black guy or a white guy, I think. <laughs> well, I still don't know. I still can't see either of you guys. Ah, the mystery deepens. And, well, I appreciate it. I thank, thank you, you so for much, all the Josh, kind words. I, uh, I appreciate both of y'all actually listening to my podcast. That means the world to me. Yeah, and you you um just remember us when when you uh when you have the biggest podcast on air. You do what you do is really good. You you can tell that you have that same, you know, you have that passion. You're passionate about what you're doing. The enthusiasm comes across um yeah. and I you know, I think that 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 really conveys. So Oh yeah, and and likewise, I know when you first messaged me, just you talking about reading up on Jim Bridger and trying to learn as much as you could about him. I like that a lot because you can tell on screen when somebody's just there to to say the words versus somebody that's really immersed themselves in it. And it sounds like you're almost at that level. Uh, what was it? Tropic Thunder where Robert Downey Jr. didn't break character until the DVD commentary. You're almost there with Jim Bridges. So that's pretty cool. I think that that'll, that'll definitely show on screen. OK, great. Well, I appreciate it again, y'all. This was really fun. All right. Thanks again to Rib Hillis and Paul Epstein. It really was nice talking to these guys. I'm hoping if they ever need Jim Bridger's idiot brother, they'll cast me for the role. 
Don't forget to check out the Tall Tales of Jim Bridger, airing this Thursday, January 11th, on INSP. That's the Tall Tales of Jim Bridger, January 11th, INSP. If you're itching for some true tales from the wild and woolly west, head on over to wildwestextra.com. While you're there, hit that contact button. Let me know what you think of the tall tales of Jim Bridger. And if you're looking to learn more about Jim Bridger in general, maybe a little companion piece to supplement the tall tales of Jim Bridger, check out the series I did on the man not too long ago. Link down below in this episode's description. And please don't forget to tune back in this Wednesday for part two in the series on John Wesley Harden. We'll examine Wes's relationship with Wild Bill Hickok and talk about the snoring incident. You know the one. All right, till next time, adios. Save some pussy for the rest of us, man. <laughs> <laughs>